Hello sword people and welcome to this episode of The Sword Guy. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to tell you about a package of free courses I've put together for you, which include a basic class in longsword, rapier, breathing exercises, meditation, and of course, joint care. I think these classes, especially meditation, breathing, and joint care, are simply too important to put behind a paywall, and so they are entirely free. You can find them at go.guywindsor.net. Just sign up there to join hundreds of your fellow sword enthusiasts and get immediate access to all of this material. I look forward to training with you. Now, on with the show. Hello, sword people. This is Guy Windsor, also known as The Sword Guy, and I'm here today with Claire Need, who is a freelance curator, a comics artist, podcaster, and has a YouTube channel on various aspects of arms and armor, which we'll be getting into in the show. So... You can find her webtoon, Girls' School of Knighthood, on the internet. I'll put a link in the show notes. And her podcast is Bustles and Broadswords. Again, there'll be a link in the show notes. And you can find her on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Claire Mead. That's C-L-A-I-R-E-M-E-A-D. So without further ado, Claire, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to have you here. So my first question is usually, whereabouts are you? Yeah, so right now I'm in my room in north of London. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so not really um, doing much because lockdown has just started. Yeah, this is November the 5th, 2020. Mm-mm. And yes, lockdown in the UK. Lockdown part two, the return of lockdown has has just started. Okay, but one of the great things about lockdown, of course, is we all have a bit more time for podcasts. Well, exactly. There we go. So it's just, I'm just turning my my room into a kind of video video podcasting comics comics creation center. Very multi-purpose <laughs> at the moment. Yeah, am I right in thinking you're not originally from London? Yes, exactly. So I am half French, half British, and I was raised in France. Uh, I only started. I only properly lived in the UK when I started uh, at uni then there's lots of back and forth between France and the UK in the past few years and I've only properly been settled down in London from a a few years ago. Okay Um, what made you settle in London? Mainly a job uh, in programming and wanting to pursue so I had that job part-time and at the same time I pursued more of my freelance career as a curator, working with a variety of museums and heritage sites in London and beyond. So you're a freelance museums curator. Mm-hmm. Yes. That is an extremely cool job. How on earth does one become a freelance museums curator? I would say with some difficulty because it's okay. uh, it is the kind of job where you you say you're a freelance curator at a party well I mean yeah used to because we're not really having parties right now and people say that's so cool and I say thank you sometimes it's a bit of a struggle uh to pay rent <laughs> but uh so it's it is the kind of job that I do supplement with other things such as translation and various other other jobs uh, at the moment it is my full-time job I'm working full-time as a freelance curator and it's something that's really built through lots of different connections and collaborations over the years. So when I started about three years ago, 
things were quite, it wasn't quite easy uh, to do so. Uh, and lots of um, word of mouth and okay. lots of just reaching out to institutions, sometimes after failed job interviews saying, I can still work with you. And actually doing so has sometimes led to full on exhibitions. <laughs> so it's always always something that you have to be quite, you have to be basically every time a door shuts, you have to come in by the window and find <laughs> some interesting way of working with an institution and kind of finding what makes you special to work with. And for me, that really ended up being working with museums and heritage sites around trying to make their collections and programming more inclusive, specifically in terms of women's narratives and LGBTQI narratives. Okay. So how, what was your first gig and what was it about? So I say that my first kind of one of my, it's, it's hard to kind of trace back the exact moment I started doing freelance curation because sometimes it was at the same time as other jobs and it's kind of hard to pinpoint. But I say that the one, my first major milestone as a freelance curator was the exhibition I did with Middlesbrough Institute of Modern Art a few years ago which basically started as a curatorial residency, doing a series of workshops with members of the Middlesbrough community who identify as on the LGBTQI spectrum or as allies of the LGBTQI community, try and imagine ways of finding these narratives and identities within the collection. And after okay. a series of... So could you give us a specific example of what mm -hmm. that might mean? Yes, of so course. Hmm. So, for example, it's really this idea of not just finding artists within a collection that identify necessarily as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender or queer, but really kind of looking at different works that can give a different perspective on gender and sexuality and relating that to visitors and how how they feel. So, for example, during these workshops, we had a session where we invited participants to come into the collections storage, which is usually out of sight. You're, you're not really able to just walk in there as a visitor. And we invited uh, participants to select a work that spoke to them in terms of gender identity, in terms of sexual identity. It didn't necessarily, the interesting thing is that that object didn't necessarily have to be produced by an artist who identified on some way or another on the LGBTQI spectrum, but it had to mean it had to mean somebody to the person that selected it. And then within the exhibition, that object was presented with the with the participant's label, kind of explaining this is what this object meant to me. So, for example, there was this beautiful rainbow brooch by brooch sorry by Andrew Logan uh, let me just yep that is, that is correct <laughs> just checking I, I get the yeah, a bit um, of fact checking is always good a bit of fact checking so it was this beautiful rainbow colored brooch by Andrew Logan and the label writer who had also selected the work said that it meant something to him because it reflected something about his bisexual identity and the different fragmented mirrors in the brooch made him feel that he had to reflect 
different identities depending on who he was talking to linked to for uh-huh. example his family or his friends who who knew knew about his bisexual identity another work was this beautiful vase by Nicolas Arroyavev Portela which is kind of let's say it looks very kind of wavy and bendy there's lots of experimentation with the way the vase looks it doesn't look all kind of smooth but it looks as though it's kind of flowing like water and the participants who selected this vase who wished to remain anonymous anonymous said that for them it said something about gender and how gender could be fluid and in motion it didn't have to be a fixed a f- kind of fixed point uh, within within something it could be something that's ever changing so those are really really interesting perspectives that really brought something to the exhibition so we had a good mix of artists who did identify on the LGBTQI spectrum alongside artists who were interested in exploring masculinity and femininity and whatever that means in different ways. And it was really good in a sense because it meant that the exhibition could go beyond those LGBTQ labels and just have something that was relatable to all different kinds of audiences. Lots of different people could just come inside and say, well, you know, for example, I'm straight, but sometimes I struggle with living up to a certain expectation of masculinity and this work helps me come to terms with that. We also had a zine library within the exhibition in which people could write their own zines and leave them there in which they could just kind of express their own point of view about their identities, who they were, how they identified and it created an experience that was really interesting because it was collaborative. It was kind of a rich tapestry of not not just a product of my own research, but the product of so many other people's inputs and ideas on what what an inclusive museum looks like. So really, it's, it was a defining moment for me, and it really shapes what I did next. Wow. Yeah, and it sort of confirms the notion that meaning is what you bring to a work of art rather than is necessarily intrinsic within it yeah exactly I think it's really interesting to see these works in terms of feminist works in terms of LGBTQI narratives as something that definitely is is shaped by is shaped by by participants Uh, I think it's also quite interesting because there's always this idea that is uh I could go on a whole rant about about no, that, you go for it. <laughs> yeah, let's let's go for the rants. I say I think it's interesting because sometimes we talk about historical figures who potentially could have identified on the LGBTQI spectrum, and there's always this idea of evidence that comes up. What evidence we have? We don't have enough evidence. And sometimes the idea of lack of evidence translates to well, since we don't have the evidence, this person is straight until proven otherwise. Uh, well, right. which, yeah. you know, is an issue in so many ways, isn't it? It's the same issue that you encounter in the idea of women and uh, swordsmanship throughout history. This idea that if we don't have any evidence of women fighting, then by default, it means that it was only men with a few a few female exceptions. Yeah. Whereas, Although there, there were yeah. quite a lot of exceptions. Well, exactly, exactly. And, you know, now we know it, it's no longer a case of proving that women wield swords. We we do know that. And so it's just about making that information more public. 
But what I find interesting is that we have to just think about the ways in which historical figures back then did not necessarily have the same labels that we have today. Things could be a lot more in flux, in motion. So we need to have a lot more kind of fluid and inclusive interpretation of the past and think about who is accessing that information today. So I think it's really important to be queer inclusive, trans inclusive and center women's histories when we talk about when we talk about the past because it's not so much only about respecting how these historical figures may have identified but also about respecting who has access to that history today, respecting the perspectives of people on the LGBTQI spectrum who want to access this history and want to find this part of themselves within the past after being told sometimes all their lives that you know that their identity is a fad or something that's brand new right no it's it's always existed they have always been there yeah and we see this a lot where you know of course medieval europe was all straight white people right <laughs> except actually uh no yeah, no 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 <laughs> absolutely not and, and, and you know rome going back to ancient rome i mean we have um there are at least two african-born emperors of rome mm. and i'm blanking on the names right now but i can look it up and put it in the show notes if anyone's interested um and you know the two perhaps most famous um fences of the 18th century are the chevalier deon who was yeah. trans mm-hmm. uh, well that label didn't exist back then but mm-hmm. Um, certainly lived the second half of her life as a woman. Yes, so exactly. by any reasonable definition, probably trans. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the Chevalier Saint-Georges, yes. who was black. Yes, absolutely. So, so like literally the two premier small sword fences of the 18th century, <laughs> one is a black guy from France and another one, well, they were both French, but um, another one is a trans woman. So like, yeah. okay, but but of course, it was all straight white men. Mm. <laughs> of course, of course. It's so interesting you say that. Well, I think one of the, the highlights of my podcast research, because there will be an episode on uh, Le Chevalier Dion coming up, or La, Cheval- yeah. La Chevaleresse Dion. I've been experimenting with, with ways of, of making uh, making that, that title a bit more inclusive of her but, uh, but it's so unfortunate you can actually pronounce that properly. And I just... <laughs> uh, well, that's a, that's a French advantage. <laughs> yeah, sure. But the highlight uh, of my research around her was finding out that the che- uh, Chevalier Dion and the Chevalier de Saint Georges had had actually fought, had yeah. actually fought in a in a in London. Yeah, exactly. And just having having an idea of that encounter. Uh, within within a history that is as you say that the people assume is is so kind of male male and white and cis and straight is just right. incredible because it just it's only one example i think that it, it's interesting it's what you say that all these exceptions that accumulate so much that really they no longer become exceptions in a way they're just and sometimes these exceptions are just the tip of the iceberg of what we've been able to preserve in this history uh, that has also been written by cis straight white men so it's yeah and, and it's I mean a couple of things are fascinating to me about that firstly that the fact that um, one of these people were black and the other one was you know dressed as a woman mm. 
um, they were still allowed to fence in public because in that fencing club, how good you were with the sword was vastly more important than your skin color or gender identity. Yes. Right. Mm. Which, which is like, I think that's a really useful lesson for, should we say, some of today's historical martial arts clubs. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and also, I mean, it bears mentioning that the oldest martial arts treatise we have, um, uh, the Sword of Buckler Manual, known as 133 mm. in Lee's Armory, um, has a woman in it. Yeah. Holding a sword and buckler. <laughs> one, one, of, one of the priest's students mm. is Walpurgis, who is yes. clearly a woman. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but girls can't fence, right? Absolutely, yeah. No, it's it's not it's not historically accurate. You see, <laughs> <laughs> goodness, yes. uh, I could, uh, yeah. I, I I don't know if you remember um, that whole episode at the beginning of January uh, uh, when somebody said that women, somebody ranted about The Witcher. Uh, that new Netflix uh, adaptation, oh, yeah. Witcher, oh, and said, right, yes. "Oh, it's not accurate for women to fight." And then all, all of all of Hema. I mean, at least at the Hema circles uh, I was in, so mm-hmm. the good ones, I, I, I think, yeah. saying women, women fight today, and they have fought in the past. And it's actually what motivated me to start start the podcast in earnest. Was was almost out of a slightly petty petty way of saying. Uh, no, they they've always existed. Yes. They all are. But also, the show has like like I've only watched the first episode. It's not really my kind of thing. But it mm. had like monsters that aren't real, and there was magic, and <laughs> and it's the girls holding swords. You're, you're yeah, saying exactly. it's unrealistic. That, that's yeah, that, that's that, sort of fixating on the wrong thing. Oh, absolutely. It always gets me um, in in fantasy as well. Uh, it's this idea that. Uh, without getting into too much detail because that content can be quite upsetting but I mean it's also the reasons honestly I've I've stopped watching Game of Thrones I I might read the books um, later on this idea that violence against women is is put in these medieval fantasy settings because it's in brackets historically accurate but then you also have a dragon and magic and you just think can't we just imagine a society in which it's just a given that there, there are lots of different other problems and power dynamics, but patriarch, the patriarchy and homophobia isn't one of them. I don't want to open a book sometimes and just see the exact same issues <laughs> that I deal with being being shown in a fantasy setting. It shows a sort of lack of imagination, really. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's just, and also just a lack of lack of women's voices. It is, it's brilliant to be able to have new fantasy that's coming out now that's that is more reflective of worlds in which women are powerful and that's just a given. Uh, and that's just really interesting for me in itself. Well, and like one of the earliest cultures that we know of, um, I think it's the city of Uruk mm. was strict was okay. It's, it's hard to say exactly how it was governed, mm. but they all worshiped a goddess called Inanna. Mm. I mean, it, it was, it, it's not exactly a, Sort of strictly patriarchal situation. Yeah. When, when the <laughs> priestess is is one of the most powerful people in the city. Yeah, exactly. Um, this reminds me of research I was doing on the Libris. So, and I was wondering why the Libris. Uh, so this kind of this axe. <laughs> now I can't describe it correctly, but you know, it, it's a two 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 sided axe. So it's kind of like yeah. 
butterfly shaped, very, very yeah. <laughs> scientific term. Um, I was wondering why it had become a feminist and lesbian symbol. Uh, and that brought me back all the way to Minoan civilization and the Libris being used in many ways in the context of a society that had powerful women as, at its core and the way in which that, that civilization was slightly I may be mistaken because I'm not an expert on that period, undermined by later on Greek, ancient Greek civilization, which was a lot more patriarchal. Uh, it's, it's just so it's really interesting to see how that symbol has has persisted and then ended up becoming a lesbian feminist symbol. And just also the way in which I think we've projected so many Eurocentric assumptions of powerful womanhood, whereas as you say, there's so many civilizations that show us that that wasn't the case at all. Um, I've been researching Queen Amani Renas for the podcast, a queen of uh, the kingdom of Kush in what is now modern Sudan, who faced off against the Roman Empire and who came from a long line of royalty in which warrior queens could reign alone on the throne without that, that being an issue. So it's just really interesting to compare that with all all the mess in Europe around different problems and and barring barring women from succession and the way in which women were kind of removed removed from power, uh, especially especially I think from the late medieval period onwards. <laughs> Don't quote me on that; I could be <laughs> completely wrong. Uh, just starting to research that subject. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's just just really interesting. I, I feel like we European history loves having that exceptional woman narrative, and it yeah. can look empowering at first sight. Uh, if you don't look very closely, you think, "Oh, it's great, we're raising up this woman." But then you think, "Oh, wait, this woman is being raised up because she did something for a man, for her husband, or, or some other reason, mm -hmm. or she did it for her country." So it's almost implying that if you're not doing it for the right reasons, you're you're not worthy of wielding a sword for your own your own kind of purposes. Uh, I think I think about that a lot mm. when I think of Joan of Arc, for example, because while that's a great narrative and it's a very popular narrative, it's also so revealing that, for example, during the First World War, Joan of Arc iconography was very very popular, but then. Uh, there's lots, actually, lots and lots of different stories around women fighting on the front, disguised as men, who were kind of ridiculed after the war ended. Uh, yeah, so, so lots of really interesting double standards, I think. And, and if I recall correctly, um, Jean d'Arc was burned at the stake. <laughs> also, also that. So that, that story did not exactly end. No. Uh, brilliantly. So, no, actually, the thing, thing you're living in England, um, mm. and we have Queen Boudicca who famously yeah. tried to stop the Romans, not mm. far from where I live at the moment. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And, you know, we've had, you know, Queen Mary, mm. who was also, she was just up the road from here when she was pronounced queen. Yeah. Um, I live in a very historic part of England. That's brilliant. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, Elizabeth is one of the more famous monarchs. Mm. Elizabeth I. So... You know, we have we have quite a lot of. I mean, Victoria, Elizabeth II. Yeah, exactly. Actually, you know, e England has spent a really long time with queens on the throne. Mm. And I say England advisedly. 
Yeah. Because for, for much of that time, these were not queens of Scotland, um, possibly Wales and maybe parts of Ireland, but I'm only talking about queens of England. Mm. Um, I remember actually a, a while ago, I read Invisible Women by oh, yeah. Caroline Criado Perez. Oh my God, that book blew me away. Oh, really? I haven't read and that I yet. Was, oh, you must. It's fantastic. But anyway, the I, I sort of ranted about it on um my blog and it's actually one of the things that led to this podcast oh interesting and yeah and and I got this sort of literally people saying oh guy you are such a cuck and (laughs) you know if you if you um you know if you let women be in charge then you know next thing you know you'll be speaking Arabic literally what the literally (laughs) yes 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 because if we let women be in charge, then uh, apparently radical Islam will take over the world. I, 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 I kid you not. But anyway, yes. they were like, they were, like, I, you know, what they didn't seem to realise is, as an Englishman, hmm. one of the highest honours I can possibly aspire to would be to kneel in front of the Queen while she taps me on the shoulder with a sword. <laughs> now I don't think that's ever going to happen, but I mean. But, really, <laughs> that you never know. <laughs> you never know. Yeah, Who yeah. knows? But, but but you get my point. It's like having you know, mm. there, there's this there's this massive disconnect between okay, yeah, give the queen a sword and she can make knights and what have you. Mm. But but you know, you know you can't have women in charge. That would just be wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Like, <laughs> yeah, but anyway, I, I just just it just struck me as um, kind of interesting how you happen to be living in a country which has this really sort of divided mm. idea of, you know, well, we have Queen Boudicca and we have Queen Elizabeth and we have all these other things. Um, but we also have people who think that if you let women have any kind of influence or control, then next thing you know, we all have to speak Arabic. Absolutely ridiculous. Also, I mean, God, yeah. I, I'd be so lucky if I could speak, if I could speak Arabic um, fluently. It's a beautiful oh, language. Sure. Yeah. Uh, like, that's, it's that's just, it's, oh yeah, no, I know, I know it's not what they Arabic. meant. They're, they're, they're meant to be Islamophobic and racist. Um, but yeah. like, they, it, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? And I, I think yeah. it's so interesting because, uh, again, this is something I've only started exploring, but I was looking at, um, I was looking at the, when the, women's succession to the throne of France had been um, abolished and it was in, in 1316 because um, some some potential heir to the throne wanted basically to keep the position for himself so he kind of declared well no woman can access the throne now and later on so much later on after the 14th century uh, this they basically kind of took this law that was called the Salic law, yeah. <laughs> and made it. Anyone who's read Henry V is familiar yeah. with Salic law. <laughs> so I'm I'm very new to the Salic law. So uh, again, not an expert, but from my in my from what I've read about it, basically interpreted what was very specific, a very specific law uh, about Frankish territories, and interpreted it as, oh well, this law, this very old official sounding law says that women should women would have never in had the right to inherit so this is this is it now and it was just really interesting i was listening to a podcast with historian eliane vieno who was saying that there's almost there's almost this kind of 
revisionist this revisionist aspect to women in power of trying to kind of almost back backdate a moment where women could not access the throne whereas there are lots of powerful powerful armed and armored women in the medieval period and lots of women after that period who just continued to continued to uh, enact that power both kind of literally i think there's the literal woman with a sword fighting and also symbolically i was um reading about Catherine of Aragon. I did it. Oh no, goodness. Each time I say Catherine of Aragon, I'm also a big Lord of the Rings fan. So I always say (laughs) Catherine of Aragon. This is terrible. Okay. I was reading about Catherine of Aragon and about the moment she was uh, briefly regent while Henry VIII was off doing something in France um, and had to uh, raise, um, she had to basically face off against Scotland and basically the accounts of her bringing armors armor up to the battle and also allegedly addressing the troops in full armor so and it's really interesting that those kind of stories because they can't really be fact checked accurately we're not really sure if it happened or not but there's lots of different instances of women also symbolically wielding swords or being represented with swords in a way that showed that obviously it it, had, it meant something. It was it was a symbol of, of power that they are very much aware of and could wield at their own advantage. So, so you know, there's just so much so yeah. much out there. Well, speaking of women wielding swords, um, do you actually wield a sword? Well, I I do. I'd say um, it's it's very interesting. I always wonder if I should. Uh, I I started my sword wielding adventures with fencing, so, and I've always wondered: is it is a foil a sword? And I think mm. yes. Uh, well, you know, I'd say it's a blade, right? It's it it is a very small blade if you compare it to, for example, a long sword. But I, I'd it's, say it's, it's not a, the, it's not the size. It's not the exactly. reason I would say a, a foil isn't a sword. Exactly, because it, no. it, it's a training tool that is designed to simulate a particular kind of sword. Yeah, exactly. So um, I'd say that's a it's, a it's a very, very, very. It's almost like it's what I think it's probably what a cat is to a tiger, right? I mean, it's it, you you no, do I use think, it for fence, but no, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. I'd say it was. It's more like a computer model of a of a tiger. Hmm, that's um, interesting. Yeah, it's, because it's it's more like a research tool. Yeah. That is interesting. It's not. It. I mean, if you look at the the, the classic weapons of um, classical fencing, you've got the mm. foil, you've got yeah. the epée, and you have saber. the saber. Yeah. And the saber is a very very light version of the kinds of military sabers that were being used mm. at the time. So it's kind of it's it's a it's a sort of sportified. Yeah, um, sportified is a nice way of, of formulating it. Version yeah. of that. The epée. With the triangular blade, it's sort of related to the small sword, but really it's a blunt version of the epée de combat, mm. which was never carried as a sidearm. It was just a sword for settling disputes. Yeah. Um, and then the foil predates both of them, I think, because you see foils mm. in, for example, in Angelo's School of Fencing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting, uh, isn't it? And it's, it's really clearly, it's not the sword it is the training tool that you use to learn the sword. Yeah, it's a, it's a gesture. It's uh it's it's kind of Yeah, it, it's a it's a model. <laughs> exactly. Well, I would say that uh while while I, I have started um 
with fencing. I, I do wield a sword as in a long sword as a beginner in historical European martial arts. And that is, that is slightly more, slightly more hefty. I mean, obviously in many ways kind of, you know, it's blunted and it's got the, the tip and I've oh, learned. How to, hmm? I, I mean, to my mind, like a blunt training long sword mm. um, is the, is the modern equivalent of a sort of medieval foil. Yeah, that's interesting. Not that there is such a thing as a medieval foil, necessarily. But it's, <laughs> it's a foil. It's got, I mean, the best of them have square cross sections and a rubber blunt. They're just bigger and differently shaped. Yeah, exactly. Right? So to my mind, that's a foil. Mm. And the sword is the actual sharp It's little, object. like a sharp object. I mean, I do have a, I do have a, rep, a beautiful um, little replica of a 17th century rapier, which is, is well, the, the edges are, the blade is blunt, but the, point is quite pointy so i always try and keep it keep it away from the cat (laughs) (laughs) it's great for referencing when you want to draw something uh and this is it is beautiful and and just just you know i'm not dissing foils at all oh no i know you're not and 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 you start you start you start training with foils because that's just the best place to start absolutely um so it totally counts. I'm, I'm not <laughs> totally <trying to laughs> diminish your experience. We're going to have um, fences, fences coming after this podcast. Like, whoa, what did you say about? <laughs> so there's already like a weird rivalry between foilists and epeists about who is better. But it's all, it's all in good fun. Yeah. It's all in good fun. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, okay, so you've been doing you've been doing foil for a while and mm. um, longsword for less time. So... Oh. Yeah, what took you so long to get? I mean, obviously you're mad about swords. Um, yes. <laughs> how, what took you so long to get into doing historical fencing? It's really interesting because it's something that I always wanted to do, and I, I think, mm-hmm. to, to be honest, I I did do it on and off. Uh, I I did take my first humor session as early as 2013, but then I broke my hand, mm-hmm. so that was not very. Ironically, not. You didn't during. break your hand doing swords. Ironically, no. So it's quite funny because I during that session um, we also learnt about nineteenth-century um, style French boxing, but I had what was then called a fr- boxer's fracture completely outside I, that lesson. It was just oh. I just banged my hand in my room, and they called it a boxer's fracture. And I thought, well, that's <laughs> that's deeply that's ironic, <laughs> deeply ironic. So I had already done a bit and then around 2014 2015 I also did stage combat which was very very interesting because it was all about more choreography than the actual learning but you still learn quite interesting things but I think in earnest I started the long sword in January and then well (laughs) something happened (laughs) yes exactly and what took me so long to really get into it in earnest especially with longsword and really just kind of stick stick to it and start reading up about it I think it's more I think it's because my levels of self-confidence changed to be honest I used to be I used to lack quite a lot of confidence in terms of sports that I couldn't immediately get better at if that makes sense and it was the same thing for fencing I think fencing definitely led me to more confidence about then starting to learn HEMA because I learned through fencing uh, that you can't you can't be naturally gifted at fencing or historical fencing at least I don't think it's really a question of practice learning admitting admitting your mistakes 
and just admitting that if you don't train for a long time, you will become incredibly rusty. Uh, it's not something where you can have an immediate proficiency. So yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've written a blog post about the myth of talent. Mm, um, yeah, yeah. So I'm entirely on the on the you know it's it's not talent; it's a combination of luck and application. Exactly. Uh, it, it's interesting because I'd I'd already used martial arts when I was a lot younger to develop my self confidence. I used to do Aikido, for example, and oh, I love Aikido. Yeah, Aikido is amazing. It's it's a brilliant sport. I think in many ways it it informed my love of fencing and historical fencing later on. But it's really this idea of you know, back in those sessions to be completely blunt, like I was a teenager and I was always kind of in tears if I didn't manage something and it, it it took a lot of kind of work to think actually I can I can do this I can fight and it's fine if I lose uh, especially in, in in regular fencing where you know there'd be lots of fencing matches but just in long in long sword lessons in general it's that it was fine to make a mistake and for example have have the teacher very very politely and gently say look this is what you shouldn't do this is how you should do it and uh, it's yeah. fine to just admit that and I think it's it, I definitely I think it, it did have something that had a bit of an intimidating aura for me at first because I could see all these incredibly from the outside all you see is these incredibly talented people that are kind of um well, fighting. Yeah, you just said yeah. talented Exactly. They're, they're exactly. They're skilled. They're experienced. They're, they're skilled. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's really interesting. Uh, I think it just takes lots of lots of patience. You have to immediately admit that you're not going to, for example, start fighting people with steel weapons straight away in your first year because that would right. that would be highly unsafe for everybody. And you just also have to realize that when you actually turn up to a HEMA session, everybody might look really intimidating. But they're actually all just my experience, at least, is that they're all very gentle, nerdy people who are actually sure. very considerate of other people's feelings. So it's, I think it's, it was dual for me. It was kind of getting over, oh, I'm going to look silly in front of other people and I'm this is not the environment for me. And then realizing this is an environment in which I can make mistakes. I can grow at my own pace. And actually, all these people—it's not a competition. Uh, people are not here to see me fail. People are here to see me thrive. Uh, exactly. And and the instructor's job is to create an environment in which it's safe to fail. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I think it's really interesting to link that. I think definitely so strongly to inclusion, and making sure that that women, that girls, that women, that people who identify in the LGBTQI spectrum that black people and people of color feel welcome in these spaces and feel listened to because uh because that there is there are connotations with um historical fencing having been you know with kind of weaponry in general of you know white supremacists trying to claim the sword as a kind of symbol of (laughs) and that's true in all sorts of like aikido for example Mm. i mean the founder of aikido was by certainly early on in his life, by any reasonable standard, a raging fascist. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was, he was a Japanese ultranationalist. I mean, mm. yeah, exactly. Which and, com- and, clashes so completely with the with what you think of as Aikido as being this kind of like slightly ab- more kind of ab- peaceful. <laughs> ab- absolutely, and and you know, there's, there's a wonderful book about him by Ellis Amder, mm. um, 
which is hidden in plain sight, mm. um, which kind of goes into sort of what he became and, and how things changed. Yeah. But yeah, it's martial arts in general are an expression of power and yeah. people who like to use power to, I don't know, lord it over other people will naturally be attracted to any source of power, including martial arts. Exactly. Exactly. And I, that's why I've been so reassured when I, I started looking to HEMA of coming across, I think that the first, for example, the, the, the club I, I joined, um, London Longsword Academy, um, at the beginning of January, I, I found out about them via a pride post, uh, a pride post. Oh, right. and, yeah. And then, you know, going to the first lessons, what really um, came out clearly uh, to me sorry, was... That's, that's Dave Rawlings's club, Yes, right? yes. If, if yeah, Dave is okay. listening. Yeah. Hi, Dave. Hi, Dave. Um, <laughs> and what really struck me when I went to lessons and um, then went to drinks afterwards was really this commitment to making sure that people felt welcome and that there was like a really really vocal just explicit anti-racist uh, anti-racist commitments uh and commitment to including women and including queer and trans people because the thing is is that, that i think there can be lots of places that want to be that but then won't explicitly say it and then the thing the thing is is that if there isn't an explicit reassurance you can't you can't know you you, you just and, and yeah. if- and you can't take it for granted just in case things go horribly wrong. Exactly, exactly. It, it, it's terrible to be in that position in the first place where, it, you know, you, you think you're in a safe space and then something makes you feel uncomfortable and you feel you feel it like you're trapped. And I, I think especially in sports where you want to have strong relationships with, with people and you, you don't want to be in that situation where suddenly you realize oh wait this this club is this club is is, is not inclusive sure um okay now i, I just noticed the clock we are galloping <laughs> over time and that's fine that's fine the great thing about this is my podcast so we can have like a two-hour episode amazing <laughs> But I think I should probably get along to the next thing on my little list of things we need to talk about. Um, Brilliant. Which is your web tune, The Girls' School of Knighthood. Um, yes. Obviously, I'll link, I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, but can you just, just tell us what it's about? Yes, absolutely. So in a nutshell, the story is about Cassidy, who is a bard in a kind of, I'd say I'd call it a kind of fantasy fantasy without magic world which might not make sense to some but makes sense to me where she's telling these tales about valiant women knights and she you can sense that she kind of wants to become one but doesn't really have the confidence to do so and then a series of events leads her to enrolling in the girls school of knighthood and where you know there's lots of different intrigues uh, intrigue begins she saves this mysterious masked girl and then uh, her kind of commitments to protecting her without really knowing who she is leads her to the path towards becoming a knight uh, while still remaining a bard in her in her spare time. So we're following the adventures of this bard knight who's trying to work out what knighthood means for her. Wow, and, and it's available online. Are you going to produce a physical copy of it anytime? <laughs> Actually, yes, it's interesting you say that because I it's really funny when you do a webcomic, you kind of start posting. I started posting just one page a week in January, and then by now I've posted I post between 
on the best weeks, 20 pages. On the slightly, the weeks where I have a bit more of a workload, 10 pages mm -hmm. a week. Wow. And yeah, no, right. but you don't really have an idea of how much you've produced when you're not doing a comic, when you're doing a comic little by little. I've already written out the script, but I, I draw it as I go. And one night, a few weeks ago, I decided, oh, um, I should compile this into a PDF for my friends who like com like my want to read my comic, but aren't really internet savvy or just want to read it in a PDF. Yeah, okay. I thought, the reason yeah. I ask is is that I'm I just can't read off web pages properly. Yeah, yeah. And and just even a PDF like on an iPad or whatever, it's okay. But it, it to mm. to really actually read something, I yeah. really need it on paper. Mm. Yeah, that's um, really... So that's that basically a self-interested question. <laughs> well, I mean, basically, the, the outcome of the PDF is I realised mm -hmm. that what I've produced so far, and so, so far, you know, we're mm -hmm. beginning of November, is 260 pages. So, yeah, I know, right? Um, so it will be first published as an online PDF, um, but, now, mm -hmm. but then I'm going to think about ways in which I could try and make it a printed version. I think I'd have to maybe revise a few things. My art style at the beginning is a bit, is a bit kind of finding itself, and I've definitely improved a lot via the comic um, and you know resolution and margins and all that stuff. But yeah, I would love, I lo would love to make it happen. I think that would be uh, that would be fantastic and would be okay. a really nice it's, way of, yeah. <laughs> it's not difficult. <laughs> Um, yeah. I mean, I've, I've produced, I've, I've been publishing my own books for ages. And mm. I've produced a couple of full color facsimiles, one of Fadi and the other of Fiore. Okay. And nice. the process of creating the book, I mean, I don't do any of the graphic stuff. I can't draw for shit. Um, so I have, <laughs> I, I hire professionals for that side of things. Yeah. But the actual process of getting it printed at a reasonable quality and bound and distributed and what have you, that's a solved problem. Mm. So. Um, when when you think you're kind of ready to to kind of look deeper into that, just just give me a bell and I will Brilliant. show you. What I will. To do. No Perfect. Problem. Thank you very much. Uh, ah, but it'll cost you. It'll cost you. I want a free copy. Oh well, yeah, yeah. We're gonna we're gonna yeah. have to do that. A free signed copy. We'll have a free signed yeah, copy. Yeah. Perfect. All right. <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, so you have a fascination with women holding swords, which mm -hmm. obviously I can totally relate to. Oh, yeah. And this comes out in articles like you have one in artuk.org about mm. the representation of women holding swords in art history. And the thing is, um, I've spent a lot of time in museums, usually looking at swords and pictures of swords. And when I was living in Italy for a few months back in 2015, and my daughters were a lot younger, uh, I was researching um, strotters, falchions, messes, that kind of thing. Mm. And I was, the thing is, in in most art that you see in museums um, from pretty much any period, uh, European art at least, if there is a curved sword, which mm. is what I was looking for, in the hands of a man, that man is almost invariably a foreigner, like a Saracen yeah. or, 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 or like the Massacre of the Innocents, for example, mm. being a classic um, mm. theme in medieval art and Renaissance art. Um, and a curved sword in the hands of a woman is almost invariably Judith. Interesting. Ah, okay. Yeah, right. something I... So, so I got my kids, we, we spent eight hours in the Vatican Museum, <laughs> right, with two small children. 
And we, we managed that by every hour, hour and a half or so filling them up with ice cream. And also I, I had this thing where if you find a picture of a man holding a curved sword and you show it to me, you get 20 cents. Brilliant. <laughs> right. So they were like on the lookout for, <laughs> for pictures of men holding curved swords. Um, so the so I mean, the representation of women holding swords there is not a lot of it that I could find yeah. that wasn't Judith. Mm. Now, I love Judith, and that, yeah, that whole story great, is fantastic. <laughs> Judith slaughtering Holofernes and just marching back to camp and basically tossing this general's head an amazing at story. the feet of the leaders of her tribe. That was just oh, that's awesome. Um, incidentally, have you, have you read uh, Lois Master Bujol's um, Forkosikan saga? Uh, I have not, no. Oh, my God. It's, there is... There is a moment in the second novel in the series um, where the the main female character in the first couple of books basically does the Judith thing. Oh. Right? And it is it is epic. So <laughs> sorry, that's a complete aside. Yeah, I've got, um, I'm putting that on my reading list. That's fantastic. Yes. Um so okay, so tell us about your research into women holding swords in art. Yes, absolutely. So it's really interesting to me because uh, for me, initially, my that research kind of stemmed from me looking into representations of just historical figures holding swords throughout history and kind of relating that to my own research in terms of LGBTQI heritage. So actually, I did come across quite a fair amount of, of women who identified would have identified on the lgbtqi spectrum while also wielding swords because there's this really interesting intersection between gender non-conforming women and you know women who would have dressed as men and wielded swords either on the battlefield or off the battlefield um, and women who would have identified as lesbian or, or bisexual as well as um tr- figures that we can interpret as trans or non-binary, even though there wouldn't necessarily have been the language to express that at the time. Uh, and then I ended up kind of looking at that idea in a framework of representations that could be both literal, so historical figures that really existed and really wielded swords, and symbolic, and you know, so portraiture of women, women holding swords in different contexts and we that kind of legendary figures, fictional biblical figures, and kind of really being interested in the contrast in some of these portraits between the incredibly ornate, fashionable outfit that they were wearing and the swords that they were wielding. <laughs> Just right. finding that an, an amazing, an amazing contrast. I also love historical fashion. So that was a nice yeah. added bonus. And just thinking what was it like? What is it like? Why is there this kind of weird contrast? Um, how can we kind of navigate these different codes of kind of femininity and something that is associated so closely with masculinity, the sword? Uh, how can we kind of navigate that in terms of representations of power? I then became really, really interested in depictions of the nine worthy women or the nine women worthies, depending on depending okay. on uh, the version, which is basically uh, late medieval, late medieval kind of creation of 
nine female equivalents to the nine worthies. So kind of the nine worthies were men of exception from mythological, historical, and biblical narratives that embodied values of chivalry. And then uh, there was, which I find quite interesting for that period. It's almost, you know, it's almost, I always compare it to He-Man and She-Ra. (laughs) <laughs> and how <laughs> emerges this alternative to He-Man and you know now has her own brand new Netflix reboot so she's superseded oh, He-Man wow. in, in some ways but like how these nine worthy women emerged as ways of embodying female um female kind of virtues was all the stereotypes that implied you know there's lots of talk of of mercy mercy and chastity 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 uh, but that that kind of those representations of those feminine virtues were contrasted with the women themselves. Uh, it was not only a celebration of those traditional virtues, but also a celebration of their prowesses in battle or leading armies. Many of these worthy women, even though the depictions and the roster of women changes, often Amazon queens. Uh, they're often Judas is sometimes past them. Just you know, checking my <laughs> checking my notes here. Um, but we also have Queen Zenobia or Queen Semiramis. Uh, so, so it's it's just really interesting to me that these figures uh, these figures emerged as the equivalents, and many of them feature these warrior queens and warrior women. And I became really interested, notably in that Art UK article about depictions like the Amberley Queens at Amberley Castle, um, kind of made circa, made around um, the 16th century, uh, that kind of represented these women, both kind of wearing these ornate dresses and wearing very fanciful armour and weaponry. Uh, I was really interested in one depiction in general, which seems seemed to be a reference to Catherine of Aragon, who as we've mentioned, had her own role to play in terms of military exploits. So it was almost some kind of dialogue between these kind of fictional representations of warrior women and how they related to actual real historical women and their kind of agency and power. So I'm really interested in finding out more about these depictions because I think they tell us so much about gender expression and kind of it's shifting, it's kind of shifting role for example, depictions of Judas interest me so much because she's often shown very beautifully dressed because there's a whole passage in which she actually comes into the tents of the general Holofernes with the intention of seducing him and well, that's him how she wine. kind of got her yeah. way in, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, and she, she shows know. up at she shows up at the, uh, the the kind of the gates of the compound yeah. and basically persuades the sentries that she's there. Yeah. Basically like 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 a well, like a prostitute to come well, and like, yeah, entertain yeah. the general. Well, yeah, and pretty much. So gets gets her way in that way, and then, mm. I mean, some 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 versions of the story, she actually does sleep with him to put him to sleep, mm. so he would be asleep when she could cut his head off. Yeah, exactly. It's so interesting, um, and it's really interesting to see how there's lots of different conflicting versions. Like some versions will will definitely some interpretations will definitely say, oh, well, she definitely did that. And then others will will try and erase it altogether. And so it's really interesting to see different depictions of Judas. One is which is a fully armoured kind of symbol of virtue and she's slaying Holofernes like, like a hero, like a kind of Joan of Arc yeah. figure. And in others, 
she's very, very seductively dressed and she's kind of seductively holding that sword. And I, so, I, I find yeah. the latter much more historically likely. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And it's it's really interesting to me because there's almost always a sense of those figures, they kind of toe the line between kind of something that's that's seen as heroic and something that's seen as mm-hmm. dangerous, like a dangerous side of women's sexuality and femininity like she's you know she's in control and she's not only using the sword and that violence but she's also using her her womanhood and her powers of seduction and that makes her some a figure that's sometimes seen as a bit ambiguous i've even seen her being represented as outright villainous really and really? yeah yeah no i mean you know there's some there's some uh, interpretations of her in okay. which you know she's seen as you know how how dare she use her sexual wiles <laughs> all that all that to stuff. save her tribe exactly That's how she dare all that stuff and it's really interesting to see her some to see her compared with the figure of Salome who uh, you know in in some early right. versions is actually seen as more a pawn to her mother of you know she's she's dancing yeah. and then her mother tells her to ask for the head of John the Baptist but she's she's not really in controlled situation compared to later versions where you know she's doing her seductive dance of the the seven veils and in some versions you see her with not only the platter with John the Baptist's head but also wielding a sword even though yeah. by all accounts she wouldn't she have been do doing herself. playing herself but it kind of adds this idea of a dangerous dangerous kind of femininity uh and i find that really really interesting in general it's like how you know how are women being to- being kind of represented wielding that power what is the right ca- kind of power and womanhood and what is the wrong in brackets kind of power and womanhood and i think there's just so much so much that's interesting to to explore just within that framework alone and i think history of art I, I I trained as an art historian, so first it's it's more of my it's more of my field. But it, I think it just it just gives you so many little different interesting insights because so much of it is often so contradictory. It, women raised up as heroes, but then brought down in other aspects, and sometimes those those lines are very very ambiguous. Do you have a favorite? version of <laughs> so oh that's, oh that's really funny because I actually shared uh, I shared my favorite version of um of Judas just this morning so I'm ready for this question oh. <laughs> uh, okay go yeah all right yeah so um so I really love um Judas by Lucas Cranach the Elder uh because it's it's interesting because it's not the most well I mean I also actually that's wrong I also really love the Artemisia Gentilenci you can't do better than that favorite. it's that that visceral that the kind of visceral it's beheading really graphic it's amazing it's yeah. like it's got that, that she, she's know, like sawing his head off exactly and it's really interesting because in other versions she's kind of if for example in the caravaggio version if you compare them uh, she's kind of like doing it but she's very she's very slender she's very delicate she's holding it at arm's length but in the Artem- in the Artemisia Gentileschi version she's just going for it and she's strong yeah um so that's my favorite version I'd say my second favorite version is the Lucas Cranach the Elder um, depiction of Judas she's basically wearing this incredible court finery so it's like a very very elaborate outfit with a plumed hat she's just lying down you know she's just sitting down at a table with her sword propped up that still has a bit of blood on it and then she's got 
the decapitated, decapitated head in front of her. And she has this really smug smile. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, just, it's a very, very smug depiction that's very, very different from the Genji Leshi one. But that I also really love because I definitely, I definitely think that um, the artist drew inspiration from courtly fashion at the time and really wanted to translate that idea that she was coming in with a seductive aspect as well. Uh, it, it just, it's just really, it really brings home that kind of trophy aspect. Uh, he did also paint a very, very similar Salome. Um, well, that's the thing. There's, if you see a, a woman with a sword, it's usually <laughs> Judith. If you see a woman with a sword and a head, and it's a head. usually Salome. Exactly, exactly. It's just so, the head. Yeah. So um, it's really, it is really interesting to, to just kind of compare and contrast those two. Have you seen the Botticelli one? Uh, it's a diptych. I... I think it's in the Uffizi, Ooh, which is well, absolutely, it's, it's, there's, the first first one is sort of like the classic, and the second one she's she's walking along with her handmaid and with <laughs> the head in a bag or a veil. She's wrapped up in a piece of cloth and she's sort of strolling along. So for for this this is a an um an audio medium, but for listeners, I will put these pictures of <laughs> Judith into the show notes so you can have a look for yourself and see what we're talking oh about. Oh my goodness, it, it is amazing. Yes, I, I can fabulous. see it now. It's, it's just, she's just strolling along, just like, oh, yeah. you know, like if this was an Instagram post, it'd just be like, oh, hey, what's up? Just, you know, just got yeah. this head in what the bag. Else? No big deal. <laughs> Might delete later. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> I, I just, I just love it. Yeah. I just think it's just so interesting to see those, see those just contrasting depictions and uh, and explore in a bit more detail what exactly they mean especially since so many women now it's just so interesting that the sword like having a sword and wielding a sword has just become this it's hugely symbolic gesture and medium like we mentioned she-ra earlier but uh, the netflix series she-ra and the princesses of power has rebooted she-ra into this sword wielding uh, lesbian hero that oh, wow. yeah yeah it's a really it's a really great reboot actually so i definitely recommend it uh and it's just it's so interesting how this how this has resonated with so many people and so for me when i look at these representations i'm not just thinking about what it meant back then but what the woman was a sword means in popular media today and so it's quite interesting to be doing that research historically and then also producing that that media about women with a sword with my own webcomic. It's an interesting, it's an interesting dual perspective. Yes, it's sort of coming together. Yeah, exactly. The, yes, the, the time is long past for more women to be carrying swords, for sure. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, since it's really interesting when I started the podcast, I, I really, I think my prologue or what the, the episode zero or uh, you know the kind of introduction was really I don't want to prove that women exist this is not about proving it we do know I just want to to kind of make more narratives visible around what that meant in terms of gender identity and gender expression and different ideas of masculinity and, and femininity to me that's really the most important part sure and that's Bustles and Broadswords for people yes. listening, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, obviously. Um, okay, there are a couple of questions I tend to um, finish up with, and given how much stuff you have done, mm. I'm not sure you even have an answer for this one, but what is the <laughs> best idea you've never acted on? Oh, okay. Well, the best idea. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one. Well, I would say um, that... 
I just in terms of what I'd like to do or just like a project, a project idea in general? How you interpret the question is as interesting <laughs> as, as the answer. Hmm. Well, I would say that um, there's a lot more I'd like to do in terms of just w- once we're out of lockdown and I can kind of you know emerge beyond digital formats alone. There's a lot more I'd like to learn once I'm further down in my um, in my sword wielding journey about the power of historical reenactments and related to women. Ah. Um, so and it's just something that I might explore. I might explore later on, um, and just as a kind of in- interview podcast format. But for me, mm-hmm. what what is uh, what power does it hold within heritage sites to have? women reenactors taking part in in tournaments taking part in historical reenactments and demonstrations uh, what does that mean for uh children of all genders who, who come who come to these castles to come to uh, come to these heritage sites to have that interpretation of history being presented to them i love to hear more perspectives from women historical reenactors and uh, from the visitors themselves. And it's definitely something that's, you know, without getting too ahead of myself, because I know it's an incredibly, it's a, it's an incredibly uh, complex, uh, complex kind of profession. Um, but it's something that I'd, li- I'd love to see. One day, if I had the power and I had the resources, I'd love to be able to organize a whole, to, to put into into the world, a whole kind of tournament of women within a castle that has oh, wow. centers women women women's nights nightly histories whether they're fictional historical symbolic that would be amazing actually i, I was reading that recently i was reading recently about um a medieval work of literature called the tournoi des dames and it's basically a historical no it's, it's actually it's very strange but it's very interesting it's basically a, a book that is almost fanfic it basically brings together real historical women and imagines them imagines them doing a tournament together, just like a real a real tournament. Uh, also, like a fancy football league. Kind of like that, actually. It's really interesting, yeah. uh, <laughs> and uh, not in a not in a negative way either. From what no, I've no. been able to read, just really kind of like, hey, these ladies are, are doing are doing a, a tournament together, and it kind of went into political. Uh, into kind of political considerations and was just quite interesting so it would be really interesting to have actually just like have a lady a ladies tournament and <laughs> see yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so my next question would normally be somebody gives you a million pounds to spend improving <laughs> historical martial arts worldwide is that how you would spend the money I, I probably i mean uh i think <laughs> okay. because i think you know just in terms of um just having engagement around women with swords that yeah. goes beyond digital formats and actually brings together act- you know women with swords would be brilliant i mean we already have amazing events like by the sword which is um a hema event which brings together women and non-binary people within hema who provide yeah that's organized uh, by fran laquata yes exactly yeah and yeah, i mean yeah. that is fran, fran was my second guest on the oh, show um, <laughs> amazing so yeah so so listeners go listen to episode two yeah and, yeah exactly you can hear all about all about organizing events like that exactly yeah. um so i wouldn't say i definitely don't have the expertise to organize hema events but i would have the if i had the money to bring together amazing 
women uh, HEMA experts and historians and just organize a big kind of educational tournament that's parts parts arms number demonstration and parts education about women and swords. I would definitely do that. I would go for it. If any castle is up for hosting that, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, castles, castles are a lot of events I've been to have been held in castles. Yeah, and yeah. Castles are generally usually really pleased to have people who are really madly interested about the about weapons and armor and what have you. And yeah. you know, as long as the as long as the health and safety stuff can be can be taken care of, yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. There are plenty. There are plenty of castles that are probably love. Oh them, yeah, maybe. yeah. I mean, I think it's really it's really great. Um, actually, you know, to see the ways in which heritage sites and castles are making efforts to be more inclusive in their programming. But there's also what's really interesting is also just that everybody's fascinated by arms and armor. I think there's it's just there's this inherent fascination. So it's really more also about ma- having more education and public visibility out there for women with swords, but also just like having having that reaction of like, wow, you know, and women can do this too. And women have always been doing this. And this is just this is just fantastic. And I say for children of all genders because I think it's you know it's always it's it's brilliant to inspire um, little girls and teenage girls. But I think there's there's just as much value for for boys um, to see them to see kind of powerful women figures out there and to you know, kind of yeah. I can actually speak to that personally because oh, really? in the in the eighties, one of my apps, I was I was mad about martial arts since, <laughs> since pretty much since I was born. Um, and in the eighties, Cynthia Rothrock, oh. the martial arts um, movie star. Yeah. Oh my god! I mean, she could kick <laughs> your head off. Um, so I sort really? of imprinted on on her quite quite strongly, and then, yeah. then I, I took up fencing the earliest I possibly could. But before that, I was doing karate and um the teachers there were two teachers a married couple and um it was many years ago so i'm blanking on the names but again there's this black belt karate woman who could kick my head off from across the room so there was never any question that you know, oh amazing martial arts. yeah and then my first fencing coach gail rudge was a woman so and she could like stick her foil wherever she wanted to stick it there's not much I could do about it so <laughs> you know the notion that girls can't fence just never occurred to me yeah I, I so, think that's yeah that's brilliant that's so, so it's, it's been hugely helpful you know well it's 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 should we say it's helped me avoid some of the common pitfalls mm. simply because I was exposed to these role models at those ages and at those stages mm. and so the the idea that you know swords aren't for girls literally never occurred to me yeah, and I think that's that's great. I think it's just it really feeds into what we were saying about avoiding avoiding the danger of having the sword being this kind of this antiquated, completely inaccurate symbol of 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 just masculinity or you know a certain right. idea that is completely whitewashed and has been reclaimed by white nationalists because it's just it's simply simply not true. And I think everybody benefits when you can see sword fighting as something that has always been the realm of of powerful of just of powerful womanhood uh, in so many ways it, just, it brings so much to the conversation and it's just really exciting to see it develop so much in recent years 
Absolutely. Well, I think that's probably a very good place to finish yeah, on. Exactly. Um, <laughs> thank you very much for taking the time with me oh, today, Claire. So I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is brilliant. I, I, I'll always love ranting about, about women with swords, and this has been a brilliant place to do so. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Claire Mead. It's hard to see how you could possibly not. That was great fun. Remember to go along to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast for the episode show notes which in this case includes things like links to the girls school of knighthood web comic and of course the various pictures of judith that we were talking about and remember to go along to go.guywindsor.net if you'd like to pick up those free courses on meditation breathing longsword rapier and how to look after your joints while we're at it the podcast has a very clear mission to improve diversity within historical martial arts and wherever i see efforts in the same sort of direction, I think fans of the podcast might be interested. And there's a particularly good example of this at Reinvented Magazine's fantastic 2021 calendar, which is called Princesses with Power Tools, where you see women who have interesting jobs like digging up fossils or uh, marine biology or engineering or all sorts of things, and they're there doing their job, but they happen to be wearing a Disney princess dress while they do it, which is just epic. And if you're interested in that, the URL for it is rather long and clumsy, so I've created a redirect. If you go to guywindsor.net forward slash calendar 2021, that will take you to their place and you can have a look. Next week on the podcast, we have Maxime Chouinard, and yes, it will go out on Christmas Day, but no, I will not be doing any work on Christmas Day. So Maxime and I talk about the, so should we say the weapons less traveled? He has an excellent blog called Hema Misfits, uh, and his mission seems to be to get people to do or to pay attention to, should we say, the less obvious historical martial arts weapons. So. It's not all longsword and a bit of rapier. There is all sorts of other cool stuff. He's also an Irish stick fighter, a museums professional. Um, you don't want to miss this conversation, so remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And let me just finish by thanking my wonderful patrons on patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for all their support, both moral support and financial, over the last weeks, months, however long they've been supporting. So... If you'd like to join us, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for extra material from the various podcasts, as well as ask me anything and fun stuff like that. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week.